for November 12th, 2018. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 541. You left with the pictures. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. I'm Matt Rather, and that is Peter Fenzel. Hey, Pete, how are you doing? Uh, you know, Matt, maybe a little bit better than you, perhaps. I'm not so sure, but <laughs> yeah. maybe. Cali- yeah, California, the bleeding edge is actually the uh, the flaming edge this week. Apparently, we have some sort of crisis of, of forest management. You know? The- <laughs> Is that how you see is fundamentally the problem is this is a managerial process problem that everybody is trying to adjust to right now. I I only I don't really mean to joke that much because this is very serious. But at the same time, you kind of have to a little bit to say saying these kinds of situations. Well, you you absolutely do. And the, the, you know, I like to stay away from the political stuff mostly because I don't like hate hate mail. But but when the the president goes on tweeting about, hey, the real problem here is bad forest management policy, (laughs) like even if that were true. And it's not. It's false. Yeah. Right. But uh, like the, the other thing is like California is dumping its water into the ocean. Not true. But even <laughs> even if it were true, like not the time to talk about that. Like a quarter million people have been evacuated or being like driven from their homes by a 30 foot wall of flame. Like the, there has been loss of life. There's been immense property damage in the in the handful of fires and then like the, we we were in the same situation last year in California man like uh the the rising temperature uh coupled with the sort of perma drought brought on by bad water management policy right like um no just brought brought on by a number of uh uh climatological factors like it's it's it is scary and people are really suffering and it it's not the time to uh it's not the time to provide a critique of the administrative state which like if it even if it is true uh which even if it were true i should say using the subjective mood to express a condition contrary to fact which let me be clear it is not Anyway, yeah, California has been, uh, California has been a, a hell of a place over the last couple of days with a, a mass shooting and, and then enormous, enormous wildfires, um, you know, burning up a lot of wilderness and a lot of property, uh, as well. And people are dying. It's really, um, yeah. it's really, uh, uh, it's really weird. So anyway, on that cheery note, let's uh, let's go well, into the pot. You know, let's uh, jump in, right? To, to clarify further, part of why I talk to you about it in a familiar fashion is that you've been in the midst of this. This is not a news story that exists for you in the abstract. This is something that you've been experiencing directly over the course of the last day or two. Yeah, I, I evacuated yeah. from Malibu. I yeah. so like on a whim on Thursday night, I was like, hey, let's go, let's go visit my girlfriend up in her house in Malibu. Uh I didn't even really think about the fires. They were not uh threatening her city at that point. Um so you know I drove the the half hour up the up the coast to uh spend the uh spend the evening there. And um so, you know, smash cut to waking up the next morning, like, uh, tra- you know, bumper to bumper traffic on Pacific Coast Highway and uh, the news coming in through all kinds of electronic and old school means, like including sheriff's deputies banging on the door, uh, cars with loudspeakers driving by saying like, evacuate, eva- this is a mandatory evacuation and all the like text alerts and things like that, that you can sign up for. Um, not the test of the presidential alert system. No, the useful alerts that come from the County. I think, uh, that all, uh, that all was, was blowing up and we had to, um, you know, throw some stuff in a car and get out of her house. Now at the, at the time, I, I, I feel like I, I don't know if I should be embarrassed about this in retrospect, but I, I guess I don't mind saying like there is something in our psychology that, that makes you not want to countenance the idea of disaster, right? Of a sort of terrible disaster happening. And so I, I was trying to keep the mood light. Like we weren't leaving my house. We were leaving her house. And I, you know, it was like, this is probably out of an abundance of caution. Like we're all, all your stuff's going to be fine, but you know, let's do the exercise of like putting the, you know, the passport and the, 
you know, the, the stuff, uh, her father is passed. And so like, there was this thing of like, oh, we got to get her dad's ashes and get, you know, carry them, um, Though uh, she made the joke, and she made it, not not me, right? Because it would be insensitive if I had made it. But it's like, well, I, I guess it wouldn't be bad if they burned their already ashes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you have to stay, you have to cope, right? You have yeah, to figure out a way well, to cope with these right, kind of situations. And, and, and that is that is what, like, that kind of, like, levity was what got us through that. And it was only later, uh, we left in two, I, I had my car up there, so we left in two separate cars, but it was only later when I was alone and had some time to reflect as we were making the, the drive. It took me an hour to go like 300 yards the first, uh, in the first leg of this, this evacuation because the traffic was being managed badly. It turns out fire knocks out power sometimes. And so the traffic control, like traffic lights were not functioning in a lot of crucial places, which was, uh, which was just a nightmare. But um, I I uh, I thought later, gosh, that is surreal. Like, and and anyone, I I witnessed it, but I haven't been through it myself. But like, you think about people in situations, you know, by natural disaster or by some sort of uh, uh, some sort of political um, cause, or you know, for whatever reason, you know, the the horrors of war, what have you, who have to be like, okay, you can take what you carry on your back. What do you want to preserve and what are you okay never seeing again? You know, and that is a rough, uh, that's a rough kind of, kind of, uh, choice to make when you put it in those stark terms. Um, I guess the, the common, the, the commonplace is like pictures, right? Mm-hmm. The sort of memory, the the kind of the the keepsakes and memories that sort of add up to your to your identity, right? In my in my girlfriend's case, she has a book of like a, a handbound book of letters that her grandmother wrote her uh, from the time she was a baby until the time she was eighteen, um, and like that was you know it's this incredibly important thing to her because uh, that grandparent was an important relationship to her growing up, and so like that you know that goes in the car, you know. Um, um, these days with, with photos in, on various kinds of electronic server storage, uh, you don't need to think about that as much. Um, but yeah, now, I mean, it's, uh, we actually don't know the ultimate fate of, of her house. It's, it was standing the last time we checked, like as of the, as of this recording, um, and I suppose I'll give a, uh, I suppose I'll give an update the next time, uh, <laughs> the next time we have a, a thing. But like, yeah, it was not, I've actually, because I live in LA proper, you know, in the, the actual city, not in a wilderness area. Um, I, I don't have, I don't live with the same kind of risk of that particular kind of natural disaster. Uh, so this was my first time sort of going through this. And like, again, I like, I, I don't want to trivialize it. I didn't go through it. I was there to kind of help. I just by happenstance, I was there to help and support um, someone else who was going through it. But, uh, but man, like, and, and then I put, I sent some, some of the photos of, of the smoke kind of billowing over the hills in the, um, in our chat room, Pete. And like you you saw, uh, what it looked like. It's, it's pretty apocalyptic. And now with the winds, the winds kind of going crazy, which is one factor, uh, having that, that, uh, makes, makes this landscape very susceptible to fire, uh, right now because of the particular wind condition that we have called the Santa Ana winds where hot, dry winds blow from inland out to the ocean, the normal of that, which is a reverse of the normal trend. Um, you know, uh, it, the smoke has gotten blown all around the city and, and all of LA smells like a, smells like a barbecue. Anyway, I, like, I, I, uh, I'm not sure what the pop culture angle on no, this I, is. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, this is a pop culture podcast. So I'll jump in and I'll bring this into a pop culture angle right now. Cause you were just talking about things that people are thinking about. Oh no, will I ever get to see this thing again? Right. And you sort of have assumptions in your life that there's certain things that you have that you'll never really completely lose. You know, you'll hold on to your your really sacred objects and that some sort of big catastrophe comes. You're going to want to secure those things and take them with you wherever you go. Uh, Unfortunately, for all of us, and of course, there's a lot of shared pain and uh, we're, you know, hoping and praying that everybody is is going to be okay. And the people who haven't, you know, people stay safe. I know people are already being hurt and killed by these fires and. And, you know, the brave firefighters and everything, it's, it's all very important. 
uh, pop culture angle. There is something that you've been seeing for many years that you will never see again. And that's the reality, right? The thing, uh, and there's been a lot of coverage of the different kinds of things that people know about that have been damaged in these fires. Uh, the Paramount Ranch is gone, right? And I feel like it's worth kind of touching on this. Yeah, it is. You got to you got to explain what that is to people. So, so the Paramount Ranch is a western town that was built. It was first it was first set up way back in the twenties and was used for western movies and for western TV shows. It's an ex, it's an exterior set. Exactly, exactly. Think about this sort of you know in Blazing Saddles where they build the town. I don't think that's the. It might be the town. I don't know actually. I don't think so. But that's sort of the idea of what what Western town kind of is. Is it's like the ultimate, uh, you know, constructed permanent sort of uh, town that exists for shooting movies on with sort of old timey cowboys stuff. Uh, you might know it from the television show Westworld or from the television show Doctor Quinn Medicine Woman. And and I, I got to think that each of us have seen this place as this sort of timeless place. For years and years and years, I kind of wonder whether Back to the Future 3 was shot there or not. Uh, do you think it was? I should probably look that up. But the point is that the fire has destroyed it. And so there's not going to be another – you can't do a, a Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman reboot that takes place in the same sets because the sets have been destroyed, which is it's just kind of interesting and, and funny and sad because – you think of this, the sets are a replica of something that existed in the past that had also been destroyed. And so the Paramount Ranch was itself sort of a thing that was taken from the kind of ravages of time and placed in this area of California where it sort of was secluded and seemed to be relatively, you know, preserved for, for almost 100 years until this fire kind of sweeps by and, and destroys it. So it's interesting to think that something that can mean something to you in the abstract like that, it's just it's interesting for me to think that. That California, the actual physical earth of California, the like the material, the material substance of California is represented is so much in all sorts of different kinds of environments in television and movies. And so the, the when California is damaged, it affects all these other things that are in the TV and movies. I mean, New York is like that, too, where it's in all the TV and it's in all the movies. And then when New York changes, you know, the World Trade Center falls down or more often, you know, there's renovations and new buildings and um, I guess the World Trade Center was the big one because you can always see when they have the exterior shot and it shows the World Trade Center. Right. The, the, yeah, the, the Twin Towers and then the nothing and then now the Freedom Tower as a New York skyline thing. Right. Like right, the, right. you can kind of date things to that uh, based on that. Um, you know what you what they show is the New York skyline. It's a it's a, a useful kind of carbon dating that you can do. Yeah. And now if you see a movie that has that kind of classic, very wide porch, Main Street, wooden Western building with a balcony on top and a big railing and, and a little kind of like frontage that's maybe half as wide as, as the uh, on the second floor as it is on the first. You know, if you see that, you know, next to a little stable with a bucket or a barrel, then you know that this is something that was done before 2018 because that building isn't there anymore, even though it was there for, you know, Almost a hundred years. Yeah, I mean, is, that, right. Yeah. That's which is a thing. Predate. I mean, I don't know. Were there Western towns? No, probably not. In a uh, uh, hundred years ago, right? A hundred years ago was nineteen eighteen. Um, which you know, right? Because the the we're celebrating out all over the world. Um, the uh, the hundred year anniversary of the end of the First World War with mm -hmm. uh, d decorum, dignity, you know, and and full participation from all of our world leaders. But the uh, the you know the set is a simulacrum, right? And thinking of it as being as having an identity, you know, uh, of what having an identity as a um, as a thing, you know, as a yeah. thing that has some sort of positive, uh, existence in itself rather than being a sort of absence or a sort of, um, not absence. What am I trying to say? A, a, a sort of potentiality, right? Mm -hmm. That, um, uh, that creative people, writers and directors and things can, and actors can sort of, uh, create out of being a kind of raw material, a kind of, a kind of his dark materials, you know, that can be, uh, sort of shaped into any form. The idea that this particular outdoor set is gone. Well, what, you know, what is that? What is a set really? Right? Like what, what is an artificial, um, 
what is an artificial construction that's not really made to be a thing, but that's only made to represent a thing um, superficially. So it's, and then to think of that as being destroyed and like, what have you lost in that, uh, in that destruction? I mean, you've lost, I guess, actual real buildings, real, you know, split rail fences, real, uh, uh, you know, clabbered, you know, real, uh, whatever, what is that double hung windows? Right. But, um, but uh more than that you've you've lost you've lost an idea and just thinking about whether the idea is the uh wh- whether the idea or the the physical um structure is the greater loss is uh sort of an interesting thought experiment right yeah and i i just i find it interesting to consider how much of the spectacle that's associated with movies and television shows in a sort of amerigocentric viewpoint is informed by the act of looking at California. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing on television? What are you doing watching the television? I'm looking at California in its many different forms. I'm looking at the parts of it that look like this. I'm looking at the parts of it that look like that. And there are people there who have costumes. Uh, it is interesting to consider, you know, is California itself a stage in a certain respect? Because so much gets shot on it in so many different ways. And uh, and so does it become a player or is it a negative space? Is it a positive space? I don't think these are easy questions to answer. And I think it varies from place to place. But I, I wonder, certainly as the you know, very material substances of the physical locations you know, are uh, annihilated, uh, there seems something is lost. It feels like something is lost. And so something had to have been there, I suppose. Although maybe it's also just a general sort of fear and pity for the the human cost, as well as for the loss of, you know, the various sorts of material things mm-hmm. in this kind of conflagration, that there's a sort of general sympathy that extends to all of the pain and suffering associated with this fire and all fires that consume in this sort of way. And then the setting of a thing like Westworld or particular, I don't know, it bothers me more that the set of Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman was destroyed. I don't know. That resonated with me in some strange way. Like Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman isn't supposed to have taken place somewhere that could be annihilated. <laughs> you know, it's just there's just something about it that just seems to me like that's not the way that it's supposed to be. And I guess I guess that sort of takes that sort of connects a lot of it. Right. It connects a lot of what's happening this weekend with regards to the fires you know, the people moving and, and trying to stay ahead of the fires and not knowing where the winds are coming and uh, the loss of kind of celebrity iconic things like the Bachelor Ranch. <laughs> right. And like the uh, Gerard Butler's house, uh, I believe, has been annihilated. And I only laugh at it because I know Gerard Butler is OK and because he posted an Instagram uh, photo where he was talking very much about how much he respects firefighters, which lets me know that Gerard Butler knows that he's going to be OK. Right. Uh, But it's not great to have your house destroyed, regardless of who you are. So but it's interesting to consider like Gerard Butler. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not more okay to have your house destroyed if you're a famous actor and have a fancy fancy house. Right. It's still the experience. It's a little bit better if you can easily find another place to live, then it's not so bad. But uh, then, let me rephrase: If you can't find another place to live, your situation is much worse. Yeah, but it's more is more dire for sure. But but if you can find another place to live, that mustn't necessarily make the situation better. Right? Like it's still bad. Uh, but it's funny because Gerard Butler, because of his sort of projects as another sort of actor who works, you know, I don't necessarily think of the problems that Gerard Butler faces in a fictional setting as being particularly serious. And, you know, it's like, oh, no, there's the gamer. Right. Oh, no, the 300 is happening again or whatever. I don't even know if he's in the second one. Probably not, I would guess, because he dies. I don't know. I didn't even watch the second 300 movie. But the point is that uh, I'm glad that Gerard Butler is performing the act of being OK with it. And so it sort of feels OK. Um, but what I'm what I'm suggesting here and, and is this all connects with uh, with with um, with World War One and with yeah. Armistice Day and Veterans Day and this sort of idea of like things happen and people are never the same and things are lost and the loss is a presence Right. As well as an absence, the loss sort of hangs around and exists. Uh, and so it's sort of like uh, there's a great there's a great scene in um, 
in book seven of Harry Potter, where, you know, spoiler alert for Harry Potter, if you haven't read it, you know, you don't, you deserve to have it spoiled for you at this point. But, uh, the, the, though, that's not, I, unless you're too young to, to have, uh, read Harry Potter. Every, every day someone is born who hasn't read Harry Potter yet. Um, the, uh, the scene I'm thinking about it happens in, I guess, a train station at the end after the villain has been vanquished and Harry talks to Dumbledore. Um, and, uh, you know, they wrap up some thematically important material for the book. And, uh, as a final thing, Harry says, Hey, is this happening in my head or is this real? And Dumbledore replies, of course it's happening in, in your head, but why on earth would you think that makes it not real? Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it strikes me with this, this thing, you know, that, that you're talking about, like Dr. Quinn medicine woman, like lives, lives in an eternal past that is supposed to be always there. Right. And I wonder if the destruction of the set for Dr. Quinn medicine woman, like, gives lie to the idea that it will always be there or that it was ever always there. But with Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman, you did, you followed the right advice, Pete, right? Like you left with the pictures, you know, mm-hmm. you, yeah, you, yeah. you walked away with the important things, the mementos that kind of reconstruct the narrative of who you are and, and what's important. And I think, you know, this, um, this connects also to the, the material, the direction that I, I, I gather you're going with, with war and, and veterans, right? Like there is both a physical and a psychological or a physical and a spiritual or a physical and a kind of more notional extension of things and events. Um, you know, in the direction of the, in the direction of the real and the direction of, I suppose, the numinous or the, the, uh, notional, right? And, and this happens to, um, this happens in war. You know, we know, uh, that, and, and World War One being the first sort of mechanized war, right? Was one of the, the, the first in which a certain kind of, horror beyond the scale to comprehend it was unleashed. Um, the, uh, uh, though, you know, I mean, war has been held as long as there has been war. I think it was Aristophanes who called war that great stainer of men's thighs, uh, because they would poop themselves <laughs> as they, uh, as the two, you know, as the two armies ran, uh, at one another, a, di- a very different sort of war than, than the war pr- uh, depicted in, the Homeric epics, a more actually mechanized and a much more depersonalized, um, for form of armies, you know, battling, battling one another. But, but, you know, and, and again, this is something I say with no actual personal experience, but just some observation, um, and some, some friends who I've supported at various times through the years, uh, even people who come back completely physically unharmed, physically unharmed, uh, often describe a kind of, um, mental, psychological or spiritual sort of rupture that has that, that they really, they really live with. And like we, you know, um, we have a vogue for sort of scientific definitions of things now. And so now it's sort of categorized by the discipline of psychology and it's, um, you know, kind of put into insurance billable terms, but, um, in, at other times in human history, it's been described as a kind of soul sickness that, that, that people come back with, with, right? And how much in an act, you know, how much of the physical and how much of, of the psychological very often coexist in, in an act, in, in a house. Like the, the, one of the horrifying things, uh, about losing your home, um, is not just the sort of destruction is not just the, the financial ruin is not just the, the, uh, you know, insecurity about where to, to lay your head about, you know, getting yourself shelter, but it's also the, the idea that the, the physical and the sort of spiritual idea of home, um, of safety, right. Which is one thing that's provided by a home of a sort of, uh, a kind of soil in which to put down roots uh, of, a sort of building blocks of identity, you know, the, the, 
if if um my childhood home god god forbid this should ever happen but if if disaster were ever to befall my childhood home the thing that would probably reduce me to tears faster than anything else uh the imagining the loss of is the door with my brother and my heights you know um uh marked you know marked on it with the date with our name and the date as we as we grew up to our to our full adult height and that like what is that is it the the actual artifact is it the physical thing is it the marks is it what the marks represent is it the idea of having grown up in a place um or or i or is it something else you know i don't know it 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 put, puts you in puts you in mind of the uh puts you in mind of the mystical a little bit yeah. and that, and that is um you know uh <laughs> that's uh i suppose a very overthinking it type of place to be yeah yeah it's really interesting i i i think when something like what you're describing happens to large groups of people it sends this shockwave through the culture that then as you're sort of coming at the culture later and kind of trying to understand what people are thinking and how it changes, you can't really look away from how this happened to so many people one time. I mean, I, I lost my childhood home for financial problems. I had to pack everything in a van and kind of get out before the sheriffs took things. This is, this is legit something that happened. Um, and, and it was a huge loss for me personally, but it was interesting I joke that it was like uh, this happened to me in like 2003 and 2000 and, and it happened to all sorts of other people in like 2008. And so it's like you guys aren't with the times, right? which, which goes back first to the first idea of like you have to joke about these things because they're too painful. But also this idea of there's uh, there are sort of these dislocation shockwaves that affect large groups of people that are on a different scale of understanding for when they happen to people individually. And it's, there's kind of an interchange of ideas between the sort of individual suffering of that sort of soul sickness that you're describing. And then the sort of uh, the group kind of sensing it in each other, feeling it from each other and reacting to it from each other, which I think seems to be something that's demonstrably something that happens. And, And one of the things that, and you know, we're sort of jumping back and forth, and I think it's appropriate jumping back and forth between different sorts of kinds of losses of a vastly different scale. But when you're really thinking about the First World War and Armistice Day, I, I find, and you know, of course, the predecessor to Veterans Day, the eleventh day, the eleventh hour, the eleventh month is when the war finally comes to its end, which was not scripted, <laughs> as far as I can tell, but was in fact just sort of the way that it worked out in yeah, real if life. You, if you scripted it, someone would, would put a note in the margin that that's really hacky. You know? yeah, <laughs> it's a little bit on the nose, right? But just that um, that the idea that Armistice Day was a day that, we, that you celebrated that this sort of horrible thing was done. And uh, thinking about the symbols of like the poppies, I was just when you were talking and jumping back and forth between the people who are psychologically suffering that you've met because of the difficulty that they've had in, you know, in wars and and the ones you've read about over the years and and identifying it with the sense of place and the sort of loss of a sense of place that happens when, say, your house burns down, uh, you know, knock on wood or whatever, you know, when this sort of thing happens, it definitely made me think of the poppy fields, which are these sort of really powerful cultural symbol of World War of the aftermath of World War One, right? You know, in Flanders Fields, the poppies grow, and and in the UK, you know, wearing the wearing the poppy as the symbol of remembrance. And yes, you know, you can see it with a sort of patriotic bent, but also just this idea that the cultural practice surrounding the loss gives a spiritual sense of place to the dislocation, the spiritual dislocation and sickness, uh, the psychological dislocation and sickness that comes from the great suffering and loss that's happened. It's interesting to think of like this numinal poppy field where everybody that you're mourning has lost. And also like thinking about it, not necessarily as this sort of abstract holiday for like the, the virtue of being in service, which is great and all, but like not really like that's fine, but the original purpose of the holiday is a very specific remembrance of people that you knew who were dead, and and as such, it's sort of evolution over time is kind of transformative, um, and of course, yes, it's important and useful to have these kinds of holidays, but underneath it is this like very different sort of feeling of re- this sort of wave of super intense loss. I always feel like it's weird 
and this is sort of jumping around in definitions of pop culture because you know we've talked about Westworld, we've talked about Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman, but uh, holidays, right? Also, that you know in America we have the two military holidays, we have Veterans Day and we have Memorial Day. Veterans Day is for those who have served. And Memorial Day is for those who have died. I don't know if people around the world are as aware of this kind of dichotomy. A lot of the times the United States has kind of off holidays that celebrate sort of the same things that other countries celebrate. You know, like we have a Labor Day, which is different from May Day, which is actually older than May Day. Uh, but like, why is it on the same day? And your Labor Day is different from our Labor Day, et cetera, et cetera. It gets very complicated. But and kind of it's a nice little Wikipedia rabbit hole. But just the idea that like uh, we uh, that Armistice Day originally I think of as a somber day of mourning and remembrance and coping for the losses that were suffered in the tragedy of the Great War and not so much as a like fist pump, you know, high five. We got the Kaiser kind of holiday. Right. Which is not really what Veterans Day is either. That's more Fourth of July. But it's like uh, the, the idea that it's um, that it's patriotic is is uh, is kind of is is fraught. Because there's different modes of what it means to be patriotic, obviously, but this sense, this sort of shockwave of powerful loss is something that I think informs a lot of uh, patriotic holidays that have a maturity to them and have a, have a sort of connection with their history. The sense that like there's a, there, and not just like the abstract loss, like, oh, these people were so brave and they died and they were heroes, which is important, but very impersonal. But more that like I knew these people or these were real people, right? Like. This isn't just any hill in California. This is like the Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman house or like my house, you know, or like my family, like my my parents or whatever, you know, my husband, my wife, you know, whatever people people died. It's, it's just it's just interesting that um, that it's that like the shockwave of loss kind of settles and then there's a rebuilding that happens on top of it that somewhat comprehends it and somewhat can't shake it. Um, and the ways that people cope with it kind of fade in terms of how well they're understood. Uh, right. And there's, there are different, I mean, there are different kinds, different kinds of losses, right? We're talking now about sort of sudden or devastating loss or loss that we sort of conceive of as unjust in, mm -hmm. in some way, right? Like sort of losing, uh, uh, losing someone in an accident is different than than losing someone who has lived a long and happy life who you know dies peacefully in bed or something like that like it's a yeah. we conceive of them differently and we sort of process them we kind of categorize them differently mentally they're in in different buckets so um yeah the biggest example of that that i think of in the culture is the story from which kim king lear is adapted versus king lear <laughs> wherein like the story that king lear is adapted from king lear like lives to a ripe old age and is sort of you know and is is welcomed into the bosom of death at his appropriate time after he's been rightfully restored after all the injustices he suffered uh shakespeare's king lear does not end in this manner <laughs> it's a little bit different turns out he uh, was not crazy after all <laughs> All's well that ends well, uh, which is not the moral of the story at all. Sorry, I interrupted you. And Fortin and Fortinbras ruled peacefully for <laughs> fifty years. Fortinbras had, and then we just wished everyone back to life with the Dragon Balls, and that's how it ends. We have a barbecue. Um, sorry, I can't help but laugh in, in the face of so much suffering, which is unfortunate. But um, yeah, and I and I mean, it's particularly thinking about California right now, right? As no, well I mean, as I, I think the you stay. I think yeah. you have to. That's a, it's an interesting thing the the impulse to sort of do to do comedy, right? Because I I think there's something literally incomprehensible and in, uh, like literally something you can't wrap your mind around. It's you know the kind of the the machinery of your mind is not designed to encompass or comprehend um the you know large scale devastation right and like sort of think, thinking through historical events um where where it's happened like almost to a one that's sort of where stand-up comedians make their uh make their living isn't it like because those are the not just because those are extreme examples and a lot of comedy has to do with exaggeration um you know uh but uh but also because that's where the that's where the discomfort is, you know, mm -hmm. and 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 um, 
I don't know, dealing, dealing with the discomfort is, is like fi- finding an alternative way, uh, other than like just curling up into a ball, you know, uh, finding an alternative way to deal with the discomfort is, is sort of what, what comedy is for. When you're a toddler, when you're like a young child, you know, before your, your, uh, before your rapier like wit is fully developed, you're like Oscar Wildean, uh, quips and Beaumont, right? Like you're, uh, you actually do curl up into a ball and cry when, when anything bad happens, right? Like, uh, you know, I don't know, your, your brother takes your toy, you're out of Rice Krispies, you're, uh, you know, I don't know, or, or anything, but we, we, there, there are compensatory and kind of coping mechanisms, um, that, that we develop. And I, I mean, that, that, that is to say, I don't think we should necessarily, as long as we're not trivializing anybody, experience i don't think we should necessarily um feel bad about about using humor to kind of process uh the magnitude of of you know large-scale loss uh or destruction because um i don't know because that's we we don't have that many other tools to do it with you know this i'm really interested in thinking about all this stuff in the concept of grizzledness I brought this up to you in our planning before the podcast is I want to because because when I think Veterans Day, I think grizzled veteran is a phrase that exists in the culture. And I'm interested in this idea of grizzledness. I'm I'm reading I'm still reading the same books that I was reading when we did the Dragon Bookmark podcast and which was all about kind of using your own solitary time right in ways that were nurturing and supportive for you. And uh, one of them involved reading, uh, you know, fantasy novels and such. But there's, you know, there's a character in the book that I'm currently reading, which is uh, to, I'm on To Green Angel Tower by Tad Williams, which, by the way, every single page, there was another thing that Game of Thrones just shamelessly ripped off. And it's hilarious. I just got past the part where there's the black horn with the runes on it and they blow it. And it doesn't do anything. And it's like, all right, all right, all right. Like, this is like the 500 thing that has very clearly been copped uh, for the Game of Thrones books. But anyway, um there's this character named uh, Igsgrimner, I think he's called, or something like that. Just very sort of like uh, euphonically and kind of the taste in your mouth is very similar to like the grizzled, you know, Igsgrimner. And he's this like big Duke guy who gets he gets dispossessed of his lands and he has to go undercover to go and kind of find this lost princess. And a lot of his story is about him complaining, like not, not necessarily complaining, but like being grumpy. Right. He's in like this is a guy who's like fought in many great wars and is supposed to be really strong and very resilient and kind of a very, very imposing figure. And he's always kind of like grumpy and, and about his situation, but like very perseverant. And it strikes me as kind of an archetype for. Uh, a war veteran, right? Which, which is, uh, and it's sort of a, a car, literally a, a cartoonish archetype of a war veteran. And when I say cartoonish, I don't just mean in the diminishing sense. I mean, if you were to make a cartoon, this is what you would make is, is this sort of like, like the square head, right? Uh, I mean, grizzled the name refers to the grayness, right? The shock of gray hair, the idea that somebody has a streak of gray hair which is a product of their age, but I guess also symbolically a product of the fact that they've seen death and encountered it and that this makes part of your hair turn gray and that has this sort of personality traits that are associated with it that sometimes manifest in real life and sometimes don't and often real times. You you like me, Matt, are more of a kind of coping through comedy and humor and laughing and processing kind of guy, I think. But there's a lot of people who cope through being quiet, right? But is it the quiet? I don't know, Pete. I've I've always seen myself as the strong, silent type. (laughs) I guess that's what I'm asking about is this is how much of what's happening with the strong, silent types is a product of the spiritual shockwave of horrible loss. And and right. Like how much of it is kind of apocalypse now versus how much of it is like man at arms from He-Man who merely doesn't talk much because his job doesn't require him to. Right? And he's like, I have a mustache and I can bring you the tank. Right. Like, and oh, I don't really have to do much else. Uh, I don't have feelings. Um, I mean, that's a trope of, uh, it's a trope of, of 
not only war movies, but any kind of, but, but any sort of coming of age movie, right? Like the sort of the character who doesn't take it seriously, kind of coming around to take it seriously. And you yeah. can sort of like view that in one light as a character who like copes with jokes and, uh, you know, and kind of distractions to transitioning into a character who um, copes by being the strong silent type, like by, by, by sort of recognizing the mystery of the world and trying neither to address uh, it nor to blunt its, its uh, terrifying force. Do you want to try a little experiment, Matt, if you're up for it? I, I am. Let's do it. Let, can we roll this conversation back to the beginning and and try to have it as grizzled, strong, silent types. Is that is that something we could try to and, and see whether it offers us insights into the human condition that are not revealed by being snarky and overly verbose? Mm. Is that possible? Welcome that something? to the Overthinking It podcast, where we talk. Hey, uh, Matt. Yeah, Pete. It's good to see you, man. Good and talk. you too, buddy. How you doing? been better fair hot out there huh don't i know don't i know it <laughs> i can't do it <laughs> yeah, no, it's, well right it becomes it, it gets campy it gets campy yeah. very fast right? right and maybe that's just you and me yeah probably but I mean, well, campiness is supposed. This is sort of what can- and we talked about campiness before, both on the podcast and also in the member hangouts, the premium member hangouts we have. We've had all great conversations about camp. That uh, that this is trying to be more. We're trying to be more of the thing than the thing itself is. That is, we're trying to play this role with an intensity that it doesn't. I guess isn't doesn't feel authentically as having in real life. Uh, but I get. I mean, certainly people get quiet. Certainly they do. And I don't want to disrespect that. I don't want to disrespect, you know, getting quiet and getting defensive. And also, I don't want to disrespect, like, not really feeling like you owe it to anybody to talk about your situation or your problems. <laughs> right? If, if like, you know, I don't I don't want to. I don't have to engage with these people. I have I have no real obligation to socialize with anybody who asks me about this. It was very unpleasant. Right. Um yeah, it's just interesting. Yeah, I it's, met I met uh, through. A, I think I probably talked about it at, on the podcast before. I've met it uh, in grad school. I met Antoine Fisher and did a play with him. Um, he is the the author whose book Antoine Fisher uh, became the film Antoine Fisher uh, with Derek Luke and Denzel Washington um, about you know it's an autobiographical story. And one of the things I you know in preparation for the work that we were doing on the same material, I read the book and and I saw the movie. But but for the purposes of this, I read the book and he sort of describes uh, a very writerly. Um, observation that he had, a realization that he had as a young boy. He said, I, I, I realized that I could have all of these opinions and perspectives on the world and keep them to myself. Right. And that like for him growing up, there was a certain amount of power and a kind of like, you know, cool universe. Right. Uh, there was this, all this, you know, world building, right? All of this personal world building that happened through keeping his thoughts to himself. Now, I, I am constituted differently as a, as a personality. I, and I, I really don't think I do have the writerly personality, right? But the, that sort of observational kind of take it all in, let it brew personality. I mean, we have, you know, what, a thousand or more hours of us just talking on the internet, right? Like that's, that's, yeah. that's not the, that's not the silent type. That's not the, the sort of the brooding, uh, writerly type. Um, which is not to say you can't be a good writer doing, doing both. But, um, uh, you, I mean, you see, you, you see what I'm saying, right? That like, th- there is something, there is a kind of power and there is a cool, uh, there can be a kind of cool expression of self in, not not talking right like uh, also i feel like there there is this idea um there is this idea these days that uh these days you know um as though as though it weren't it hasn't ever been thus um there is this idea that that you can be kind of summoned up or kind of put on the spot uh and that like people can um 
people that people have the right to i don't know tell you what to uh, you know t- tell you what to say when it is time to bear witness or or something like that and like that's not you know uh that's not necessarily that's not necessarily true right like you don't have to tell your war story if your war story is upsetting to you and and telling it doesn't do anything for you you don't necessarily owe it to an audience they can't just like order that um mm. order that off the menu and i feel like there's there are I don't know, kind of boundary issues a lot of the time in, in relationships when you think about how, how we can start to use each other, um, that, uh, you know, that, that sort of bear on this. And I guess like war stories, like is one, like a lot of people don't want to talk about traumatic, traumatic events in their lives. And that's, that's like, that's okay too. Right. Like, I think we need room. I think we need a, a, a way of, um, I'm going to say a phrase I don't like where we need a way of holding space. I don't like it because I don't actually know what it means. We need a way of for allowing for the importance of something without necessarily airing it. There it is airing it. And there is this sort of in the kind of information ecology that we find ourselves in. There is this, this almost pornographic sort of surfeit of information, you know, of all, of all sorts. And the information withheld, uh, can be important as well. And, and it's something that we need to honor and not necessarily insist that, uh, it all wants to be shared or it all wants to be free. You know what I mean? There's so much being shared that it's easy to assume that you're hearing everything. Oh, damn. <laughs> I didn't think that was going to get an oh, damn, but sure. Why not? Yeah. But I, love, that's, I, love I mean, that. that is a great, that is a great, I mean, can, can you cash that out a little bit? Cause that's a really great observation. Yeah. Just that if you listen then, and, and you listen, so you listen to many different people. Uh, I, I mean, the, one of the basic corollaries of it is kind of social desirability, right? Which is that anybody, you're not going to hear you're not going to if you survey or you ask or you listen, you're not going to hear people saying things that it is not advantageous to them to say. And this is but also just that um, even more than that, even more than the phenomenon of the people who raise their voices the most are the people who frame the narrative for everybody. And the idea that if you're trying to understand what's happening, you listen to the people who are talking. And and not only that, but. Not only this idea that the kind of history is written by the writers and the talkers as opposed to by the victors, right, by the people who are putting it out there, but more that as a listener, I think there's a there's a bit of a transformation that can happen where the idea of the world and the scope of the world changes based on the kind of sense of satisfaction that you might have in uh, for better or for worse in the in the sort of taking in of other people's emotional expression i would say that that you encounter other people's feelings or maybe i encounter other people's feelings not to project it onto you but to propose this Uh, i encounter other people's feelings and if i encounter a sufficient sort of diversity and scope and strength of feelings there's a feeling on my part of certain satisfaction of like oh i feel like i really have have kind of taken in you know i've taken in what people are saying and, uh, and and I can think like I've heard. I mean, I've certainly heard more than I can handle. Uh, you know, you take in more uh, of the emotions of others than you can necessarily kind of feel, you know, secure and balanced and kind of like letting into your brain. Uh, and then you can feel like, well, that must be enough. Right. That must be it. But no, you know, maybe it's totally not. Maybe maybe it's not a case of more being the answer. Uh, to, to understanding, but there being kind of structural shortcomings in the way that you could arrive at understanding. So that would be how I would cash it out, I guess, although the first sentence was much pithier. I don't know if that does the trick, as it were. There's also, I mean, there's also a, I feel like even more than the technical argument, there's also kind of a moral argument about it, um, which is that, you know, there's a, there's a, yeah, uh, the the idea the idea that you could be missing something fundamental about the world, right? And this goes this goes back to the idea of of um things having both a kind of a physical and a non-physical aspect uh mm-hmm. of events, right? 
the, the idea that the things that you can comprehend are the important things is probably, is probably a fallacy, right? Mm. That the idea that, because well, there could be many, um, there could be many important things and the, you know, the, and, and the idea that all the, um, all the important ideas are expressed is probably wrong. You know, is probably wrong. Uh, I'm going to say morally, but it's probably, it's probably better if we don't, if we allow for the idea that maybe not all the most important ideas are expressed. And it, it seems to me that like what that requires is a new way of listening. You know, this is God, this is overthinking it. Your spirituality podcast where we, (laughs) you know, so what you're saying is listening to when people don't talk to you. I think listening to when people don't talk to you, but, or sort of listening to a quality of presence, listening to, you know, listening to the electricity in the air, right? Like, um, listening to, uh, uh, the sort of emotional experience that, that people are going through. Um, it's something that I think shrinks are sort of trained in explicitly how to kind of observe, uh, observe kind of nonverbal process, you know, happening in, inside a person's mind. Um, and like, yeah, to, to, to be, I, I I once told you about uh, the the rubric, didn't I? That that I heard of um, a two by two matrix of of what you know and what I know about you. Yeah, you right, know? right, right. There's what you know about me. There's what uh, that. I, the, rephrase it. Cash it out for me again. It's or, two. Or it's it so imagine a two by two matrix. Like on one axis, it's what you know. Uh, you know, yes or no. And on the other axis, it's, it's, I know, yes or no. Um, I know or I don't know. So, and, and we're talking about, we're talking about a person now. So like there is the you that you and I both know. That's your public self, right? There's the you that you know and I don't know. That's your sort of private self, your inner experience. We were talking about that a little bit. There's the you that I know that you don't know, which are your blind spots. Right. And then there's, there is a you that neither of us knows, which is a sense of mystery. Right. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I actually forget the original context in which I heard this. The, the idea, this little rubric itself has survived sort of more than the point that whoever was originally trying to make with it. But that like, um, you know, I don't know. I think that like what, if, if you are, so strictly materialist um you i you i think you lose out on a lot of the profundity of the experience in terms of like comprehending the loss in a you know big wildfire with loss of life and destruction of property and things like that or or a you know or a a huge global um, traumatic cataclysm like the the first world war you know if it if it's just uh if it's all just molecules to you i think you you lose some some important aspect of that of what that is and what it means right yeah i can almost feel the pull of the gravity from the quadrant where we both don't know to the quadrant where i know when you don't Right. Like there's a person that doesn't know what's going on for them. They don't fully understand themselves because in this case, because something really cataclysmic has happened in their life, something very dislocated. And it's almost it can be it can be kind of uh, a precarious an, an, an unstable equilibrium of sort of believing that that's the situation that you're in because people want to resolve the knowing. And so instead, I will come up with an explanation for why I think you feel the way you feel. Which is rude, <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> Although I do it all the time, it's rude. Uh, you feel the way you feel, and maybe you don't understand it, but it's not for me to necessarily know to understand it either. I guess unless you know you ask me, or you know I'm your psychiatrist or something. Yeah, I mean, but, how can how can you do? But if you're if you're like really doing that kind of maybe not psychiatry, like psychiatry is with drugs, right? So like, if you're doing that kind of like talk therapy, that it takes a long time to get to that point where, you know, um, where a shrink will make those kinds of suggestions to you, you know, uh, the, right. It's not sort of off the, off the bat, or at least it, it, 
shouldn't be. You kind of have to get to know someone. Um, you have to get to know someone very well. And I think there's some literature in that discipline about like letting about actually about the mystery or about the kind of intra, oh, sorry, inter psychic, um, process that, that, you know, happens, uh, in psychoanalysis. But the, 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 yeah, you sort of want to, you sort of want to reduce it to something that you understand. You want to think that because you've heard a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, you've heard everything. And you want to think that you've heard all the important things because the important things are the things that you've heard. Because of course they are, you've heard them, you know? <laughs> and that, that like, uh, you know, this is, uh, I don't know. This is a, a um, bit of a bit of a, a navel gazing conversation. But as we used to say, uh, as the tagline of overthinking it, if you gaze into the navel long enough, the navel starts gazing into you. That's been a long time since I've heard that saying. Yeah, that was uh, that was on the. I think the maybe the second incarnation of our website. <laughs> I mean, we've done we've done. Uh, I mean, grizzled refers to gray hair, right? And yeah. like the, the meaning of that gray hair, that's one of those words that you think it means bedraggled or unkempt, sort of, right? Like it doesn't mean bedraggled or unkempt. It means having gray hair or, you know, gray facial hair or something like that. Right, right, right. Like the word swarthy, I believe, also refers to, that's refers to skin, right? Skin color, not to like, uh, not to like being unwashed. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right, yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, the the other word uh, like that uh, that I like is is stentorian, right? Ooh. Which uh, means loud, but you know, <laughs> it it means loud, but uh, it has a connotation of meaning like oratorical or you know bombastic or something like that, as of a voice, a stentorian voice, right? Um, declamatory you know and that's that's not it means uh means loud oh here's another good one this isn't one uh nonplussed yes 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 means surprised (laughs) not uh not unmoved as though you know um as though any sort of uh strong reaction would be a plus and you don't have any of the pluses (laughs) so you're non so you're nonplussed right like, for example, I was nonplussed when I got a mandatory evacuation notice <laughs> the other day. I was, I was not. I was nonplussed to hear about the fact that you had to evacuate a family out of the path of a terrible fire. Right, and that's and that that doesn't mean unmoved. I no. I was I was moved literally, and Pete was moved in his soul by those uh, by those things. Like, well, uh, I I hope if nothing else, I've been stentorian for you in this moment of need. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, um, I, uh, just one of the, all this, this stress and things like this, enough stuff like this happens to you in life, you're, you're going to wind up grizzled, you know? Yeah, or her suit. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm her suit, uh, no matter what I try to do. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks, Pete, for for having this conversation with me. I, I meant to say at the beginning, did did we count the number of hands on this podcast? Oh, this is a this is a story two hander. Yeah, like, what a is, story! It, yeah, it's a hell of a story, isn't it? Yeah, um, a conflagration. Yeah, really, uh, literally. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thanks very much for, uh, and I hope everything works out for you guys. Definitely. I yeah, hope everybody gets back home safe. Me, me too. Yeah. There are a lot, a lot of people and, and, you know, not just, not just celebrities, the, the celebrity angle plays on the news. And so you hear a lot of that stuff, but the communities that are affected by, at least by the Woolsey fire, which is the, um, which is the, the one that, you know, I was, uh, evacuating what are not all fancy folks. It's, it's a lot of, you know, a lot of people, a lot of just people with houses trying to, trying to live their lives, trying to outrun a 30 foot wall of flame. Anyway, that's, I, I don't know. I feel like we need a, a, a happier note to, to end on. Um, Hey, hey um, we, we, mean- we punched the Kaiser in the nose. <laughs> I was going to suggest that we didn't start the fire 
but it has in fact always been burning since the world's been turning <laughs> <laughs> and then just start listing historical events. But maybe that would have been a little bit too verbose for the situation. <laughs> Leonard Bernstein gets a whole measure of that song, which I've never understood. <laughs> it just seems like of all the cultural figures. Anyway, uh, thanks very much for listening. Um, if you would like to uh, leave some comments for us about this, this, you can do it by going to the homepage of overthinking it, uh, finding the show notes for this episode and uh, clicking through you'll find a comment form we'll do some comments uh do some some user comments next uh, user listener comments uh next week i've been working in in the digital space too long users um and uh and until then until we're back next week please visit us on the web at overthinking it where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably it probably doesn't doesn't deserve What, I don't have to say something. I could just be quiet. It's my business. <laughs>